Well, good morning, and we're going to keep walking through the book of Ephesians together this morning on our Keep Walking journey and series. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. we got a lot of ground to cover, so uh, let's jump right in today to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You probably noticed as you came in this morning or as you walk outside today that it is fall, and it is beautiful outside, and uh, we're excited about our fall festival today and uh, just about all the beauty of God's creation that's out there. But fall is my favorite time of the year. And one of the reasons why it is my favorite time of the year is because of the weather. I love the weather. But also, when fall comes, my life is consumed by football. Uh, I love uh, MCYFL, our county league, where my son Drew plays. I love high school football, where my older son uh, Will plays, and I love college football. I've always been a big fan of college football, especially uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide, and I love football, but also uh, enjoy pro football in the NFL, mainly because of fantasy football. We have a fantasy football uh, league here with some members of our church, and we uh, have some fun with that, and I pay attention to it because I'm interested in the players that are on my team, but I love it all. It's fascinating to me. It's, it's exciting to watch offensive and defensive and special teams all come together as a coordinated unit, as one fighting machine with one goal in mind, and that is to win the ball game, to do whatever you have to do, the individual parts of the team working together. It, it amazes me to see how each individual member is able to accomplish their task and how it benefits the whole. And if one person doesn't do their job, misses one blocking assignment, misses one read on defense, whatever the case may be, it can affect the entire outcome of the game even in just one play. Uh, they have all very different skills and very different abilities and different speeds and different sizes, and yet they all come together in such a way that it works like a harmonious unit, a harmonious choir that, that just is able to do things they could not do on their own. But if, if those individual people with those skill sets and with those talents were in the wrong position, it wouldn't work. I mean, imagine Tom Brady as a nose guard or Ron Gronka uh, Rob Gronkowski as uh, a, a safety or Antonio Brown playing defensive end. Those people would be way out of position. They would not be able to manage the opposition. They wouldn't be able to play the way they do in the positions that they are supposed to be in. But when Tom Brady's playing quarterback, when Rob Gronkowski's playing tight end, when Antonio Brown is playing uh, wide receiver, then with all the other teammates added to the mix as well, they were able to win the Super Bowl this past year for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But it's not possible if they're in the wrong position. But in the right positions, they work together as a team. And what's true in football is equally true, if not even more so, of the church, the body of Christ. When each member of the church is in the right position, doing the right job for the right reason, then we are able to, by the, by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to, to reach our community, to influence the world for the glory of God, and so that the lost might hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our belief in the gospel must affect our behavior in the world, and it begins right here 
in the church. So what does it look like for us using our gifts and abilities and talents and callings to walk in unity together? When God puts his team together here at College Road, what shape will it take? What will your assignment be? What will my assignment be? What position in the church will we play? And Paul puts before us kind of four ways that the gospel helps us to walk in unity. And the first is this. The gospel changes our hearts. If we're going to work together in unity on this team that God has put together, then first God must change our hearts. And that's what he deals with in the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's where Paul starts as he's talking about our responsibility as a church family to walk in unity, taking what we believe and putting it into practice in the church. God desires our unity. He desires our oneness. Now, unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is when we all look the same, we all act the same. It's boring, and frankly, it's not really that much use at all. If everybody is the same, then we can only accomplish the same thing. We can't possibly accomplish everything God's called us to. Unity is when we walk together and we work together with common convictions and commitments, and both the convictions and commitments are equally as important as the walk and the work. And so we begin with the walk and the work, but then we talk about the convictions and the, and the commitments as well. So there is unity in behavior, our walk, our work, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, these verses here note four aspects of what unified behavior would actually look like in the church and in your life. It, it begins with humility. If you can't be humble, you're certainly not going to submit yourself to God and also to other believers. But humility is true self-evaluation. You recognize that you don't know everything. You can't do everything. You need help. True self-awareness. See, the standard is Christ, not other people. And when we measure ourselves with Christ, we realize we're not perfect. And we need help being built up. And we are responsible to help build others up. But we have to be humble to do that. And we also have to have gentleness, meekness. We need to be a God-controlled man or a God-controlled woman. Our convictions are under control and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We have a spirit of submission, not constantly a spirit of divisiveness, or really in many instances, authority. You may have authority, but recognize that you're under God's authority. We need to be gentle. It is strength, but it's strength under control. And meekness is not the same as weakness. As a matter of fact, meekness and gentleness and humility before God brings great power. But we also need to have patience. So with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we're not seeking to retaliate. We're not seeking revenge. But we sometimes have to suffer and wait, like Joseph in the Old Testament, where, where we know that ultimately God is the one who avenges, and we leave that up to him. The, the truest evidence of 
death to self and death to our ego is being patient even when our brothers and sisters in Christ sin against us. Our desire is to reconcile. Our desire is not to retaliate and to be vengeful, but to walk in unity, even when we may not be wrong. And sometimes we find out we actually were wrong. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. There's room in your love for those who hurt you and offend you. Now, he's talking about within the church, okay? There are plenty of times in society where it's just better for us to remove ourselves from that position or that situation. But, but in the church, we've made a commitment to work together. A spirit-enabled restraint in our life. Unity is kept. It's not created. How is it kept? By the Spirit, who is the bond, the one who binds or keeps us together in peace, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So there's unity in our behavior, but that comes forth out of the fact that we have unity in belief as well. See, our theology really does matter. What you believe matters. It affects how we live. And he really gives us seven facets of our unity that we believe in, that we are committed to, that we hold fast to, that allows us to have unity in the body of Christ. He notes them in verses 4 through 6. He says here, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's he talking about here? One body of Christ. There are no barriers. We are one living organism working together in unity. One spirit, the energizer of the body. The, the one that empowers the body of Christ. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. If you want to go look that up, this is the power for the, the body of Christ is the spirit. And we have one hope. And that one hope is to be like him, Christ, and to be with him. And it's made possible by the work of the spirit in our life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ we have one Lord that one hope is in one Lord and that one Lord's name is Jesus he brings us together he makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God and because of one faith and here that faith is the experience of faith our personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ our one Lord made possible by the one spirit that gives us that one hope in the one body of Christ and all of this because there ultimately is the what Jesus has done for us and how do we proclaim that one baptism and here he actually has in mind water baptism Curtis Vaughn put it this way I think it's a great summary uh, of these verses here the point of the verse is that there is one Lord who is obeyed and adored one believing experience that brings people into saving union with that Lord. One outward visible ceremony by which believers confess their faith and are openly incorporated into the fellowship of God's people. In other words, because of the gospel of our one Lord and our one faith in that Lord, we then make an open profession of that faith and say we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are unified because of it all under one God and Father. There's no polytheism in Christianity. There's only one God. Now other religions have a very different view of God. Some of them believe in multiple gods. Some of them believe in gods that are abstract. Some of them believe in gods that are not personal. But, but that's not true of Christianity. 
But even in some of the other ones, there's a belief that we all can be God. Like, for instance, the New Age mysticism that someone like Shirley MacLaine would sort of exalt. She actually says in her book, Dancing in the Light, each soul is its own God. You must never worship anyone or anything other than self. For you are God, and to love self is to love God. Well, the problem with that is the Bible would have a very different view of God. I think we would agree. It shows us that there's only one God, and He has revealed Himself to us as the Father. That we are to believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, so that we might be reconciled to one God and one Father. He's above all. He is sovereign. He is through all. He is imminent. And He is in and with all. He is intimate. Because of that, we don't have to live our lives being held captive to our selfishness, to our self-absorption that New Age tells us that we need to do. We can be set free from that in order to serve Him in unity with the body of Christ. The Gospel changes our hearts so that we might be unified for the glory of God. But also, the Gospel preserves our diversity. It doesn't do away with our uniqueness. It's Like I said earlier, we are to be unified, but it's not that we are to be uniform. It's unity, not uniformity. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. It's available to each one of us. We've received the grace of God and the precise proportions that Christ has given it to us. Then he continues, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now that may seem confusing. It's just strange the way he sort of ordered it, but sometimes that's the difference between the way Greek and English reads. But when Jesus went back to heaven, when he ascended, he didn't leave us empty-handed. As he ascended, the, the Lord poured out his gifts as a victorious general on all of his followers, his saints, God's children, and Jesus didn't just simply save us from sin, he also saved each one of us for service to Him, and He equipped us to accomplish that. So, here's the reality. The Savior makes it possible for us to have our diversity preserved. Again, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us. No one is left out, received gifts from Christ. And then inciting Psalm chapter 68, verse 18, Paul sees the incarnation, him descending and the ascension of Christ as evidence that God has come and rescued his people as a victorious king he's quoting the Old Testament here and reminding us of why God did what he did having received the gifts the spoils of victory over sin death hell the grave now Jesus gives back to his people spiritually gifted men and women that might minister to the people for His glory, for His responsibility, for His church. Christ, the ascended Lord, who sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us daily, has defeated the powers of evil 
that attacked, conquered, enslaved us. He's the one who came all the way down in the incarnation to the lower regions, to the earth, born of a virgin, little peasant family, as a carpenter. All the way down, now has gone all the way up to a position of authority that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's gone all the way up. And in so doing, he is far above all, fills all, and gives gift to all who follow him. It is made possible by the Savior. But the saints prove that it's true because we get these gifts and now we put them into practice and it just proves what Scripture says that Jesus has done because we see evidence of it in the lives of believers. Spiritual gifts are mentioned in four texts of Scripture. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right here in Ephesians chapter 4, and then also in 1 Peter chapter 4. In, in verse 7, it's going to affirm that everybody has at least one. Spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents. You are naturally talented in some areas that don't have anything to do with your spiritual gifts. Sometimes they overlap, but not always. Natural talents and abilities you've had since your natural birth, but spiritual gifts you've had since your spiritual birth. Verse 11 gives attention to four that are essential for the health of the church. They're all leadership positions. The apostles and the prophets are foundational. They're actually have more to do with the starting of churches. But an apostle in a technical sense has to do with the 12 apostles that were followers of Jesus, plus Paul. In a general sense, though, it means any sent one. In, in our context, it really has more to do with missionaries that are sent out to plant and start churches. Prophets were foretellers, even more so than foretellers or future tellers. They were Forth tellers, prophets were bold proclaimers of God's revelation. Evangelists are gifted in bringing forth new births like spiritual obstetricians. They were people like Billy Graham, Louis Palau, Jay Strack that would do it before large audiences, mass evangelism, but also people are gifted in evangelism that do it in one-on-one -on -one sharing of their faith. But they essentially bring forth new births. But that's not the end of it. Then there are pastors and teachers that, that are serving in that context as well. And, and, and really that ought to be translated pastor-teacher as one particular gifting. They're spiritual pediatricians who lead and feed and provide for and protect the local congregation. Now here's the interesting thing. All of these people all of these positions they minister to us they minister with us but they don't minister for us because that's not that's not what necessarily we've been called to to do why do we say it that way because he says they gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers but then verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Here's the interesting thing. They don't work for us. They work with us, and, and they minister to us. But the gospel equips us for ministry. And God put people in our life to help us be equipped for ministry. That's what he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister. That, ought, that actually could be a motto for a church that comes straight out of Scripture. It's also a very biblical model that we see over and over again in the New Testament. There are two areas that God desires for all of His children to be equipped to champion. Number one, edify the church. Build up the church. To mature, to help it to develop. I mean, when all of us are doing our part, the body of Christ grows. It grows up in worship. It grows out in evangelism. And it grows deeper within through discipleship. It is edified. It is made strong. It is vibrant. It is alive because of the work of ministry that we do together. Now hear me, just because we're moving doesn't mean we're going anywhere. We want to go and grow to be the church that God saved us to be, which means we can't just have a lot of activities. We need to be about the ministry that God has called us to. And we are, we are equipped and gifted to accomplish that task together as we're walking in unity. Edify the church and educate the church, the people of the church, the new believers into mature godly living. Here's what he says in verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God has a destiny, a goal at which he hopes that His church, He challenges us, He commands us to achieve and to aim for. And it consists of three parts that we see in verses 13 through 14. Unity in the faith. Walking in unity. Knowledge, full and experiential knowledge of the Son of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And a perfect, complete, mature believer. Not children, not babies. Paul at one point in his letter said, you, you're still spiritual babies. You're on spiritual milk. It's time for you to grow up, start eating meat. You cannot drink milk for the rest of your life. At some point, you actually have to mature. God wants us to know Him and to know Him truthfully. Not just to know about Him, but we need to have an intimate knowledge of, of Him. And unfortunately, there are many people who don't. The immature believer, many times, are never settled. They're fickle. They're shifting. They're not dependable. They have no commitment to the church. They have no roots, no convictions. They're constantly being moved around. When tough times come, they run. When a slick presentation is made by someone who is uh, a false teacher, they're deceived. They're blown about, tricked, by the loaded dice, by the sleight of hand, by the illusions of the world. They're fooled by clever schemes and deceived by the plots of the evil one. Why? Because they have no roots. Because nobody took the time in the church to disciple them. And God gave us people to 
speak into our life and to disciple us but in many churches people that have been gifted in those areas aren't using their gifts to help help educate the people that are growing up in the ministry there and therefore people are leaving the church and they're really wide but they have no depth they have no roots and it looks good on the surface but it's not real and when the storms of life come they're going to fade away and that's why the gospel helps us to grow into maturity as well uh, Albert Yu was speaking of high-performance companies in the New York Times bestseller, The Discipline of Market Leaders, but he just as easily could have been talking about the church when he said, the trick is to pull together as a total entity to compare it to an orchestra made up of different instruments but all performing one symphony together. Every player has a major role. If we're out of sync, we're in trouble. This is really the reality of the church that we live in today that if we could pull together and walk in unity with our belief and also with our behavior we could put our gifts into practice there is no limit to what god could do through us remember the verse right before this god is able to do exceedingly beyond more abundantly than anything we could ever ask or think according to the power that's within us. That's the power at our disposal. If we're in the right place, doing the right things for the right reason, working together, walking in unity, this church could so incredibly affect the community, the state, the nation, and world because God is great and He does great things through His people. So what does that look like in the life of the church? Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We ought to be mature in what? We ought to be mature in your speech. We continually speak with and love and we grow up in Christ who is our head. He's our Lord. We're following Him. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. And, and by the way, can I just add, if you can't speak the truth in love, maybe you shouldn't speak at all. I'm not sure speaking the truth in hatred. I'm not sure that speaking the truth with animosity. I'm not sure that speaking the truth with hostility is really going to work. So maybe if you can't speak the truth in love, you should just keep your mouth shut. Because it certainly is not something that is helpful for the glory of God. It does not build up the church. It is not going to reach the lost. So maybe there's times when we ought to just zip it. But when we can be mature believers, because by the way, speaking truth in a harsh and hostile and angry and hateful way is not mature speech. Matter of fact, it is the very essence of childish speech. But when we can be mature in our speech, then we can bring glory to God. We can build up the church. We can reach the lost. And then, not only can we speak mature, uh, be mature in our speech, but we can be mature in your service as well. Together, every part doing its share. Not just sitting around to receive, not just attending 17 different Bible studies, always gleaning from everyone else, but at some point actually putting your faith into practice, 
Now, not everybody's going to be the same. God makes some of us a thousand-gallon vessels and others half-pint vessels. But, but here's the reality. He is far more pleased with a half-pint running over than a half-filled thousand-gallon vessel. God's desire is that you would be filled with Him and His desire for your life and that that's what you would seek to do with your life. Now, what does this look like? When even though we're very diverse, we begin to walk in unity. How does that look in the individual lives of believers? I could tell you exactly what it looks like on, on, in your life, but I can tell you what it's looked like in some people's lives. Language therapist Lucy Smith and her faith-based literacy program for Texas prisoners is one example of this. She spends eight hours a day in Dallas and Fort Worth jails. A 61-year-old grandmother of seven, she oversees 44 tutors who teach roughly 60 minutes per week. If a person can't read the Word of God for themselves, she says, he cannot ascertain the truths for his life. This was a report from World Magazine. Her efforts have caught the attention of state prison officials who are now encouraging the, deve listen to this, encouraging the development of faith-based programs across the state in prisons. Here's another example. 93-year-old Carl Mix who after a life of ministry to shut-ins in hospitals and sanitariums and prisons, now volunteers his services at a geriatric psychiatry center in Canton, Ohio, where he visits patients once a week and leads Sunday morning worship services, 93 years old, yet still using his gifts as part of the body of Christ for the glory of God to reach the lost. Lieutenant Jeff Francis, who is the founder of the Chattanooga, Tennessee Police Department's first gang division, he now spends his days working with troubled youth, goes home, works with troubled adults. For the past 16 years, he and his wife, Gail, have cared for mentally handicapped adults as house parents for the Orange Grove Center. They also homeschool their four children and interpret for the deaf at their local church. Whatever we can do, Lord, However we can serve, whatever we can do, send us. Just some examples. One that I remember very vividly because I was a teenager at that time in school. But I remember reading this letter after the events of the Columbine school shooting when one of the students that was killed that day, Cassie Bernal, just a few months before wrote this letter to a friend. I'm just so thankful for everything he, God, has done for me as well as for others. Even when things are bad, he's stood next to me, and things are a little less prone to becoming blown out of proportion by my emotions. You know, I wonder what God's going to do with my life. I like my purpose. Some people become missionaries and things, but what about me? What does God have in store for me? Where do my talents and gifts lie? For now, I'll just take it day by day. I'm confident that I'll know someday Maybe I'll look back at my life and think, oh, that was it. Isn't it amazing, this plan that we're a part of? Ten months and eight days later, that shooter at Columbine High School would hold a gun to Cassie Bernal's head and say, do you believe in God? And she'd already witnessed and knew if she said yes, he was going to take her life. And right there, with her whole life in front of her. Instead of backing away, as the book title 
says, she said yes. And her life was ended in an instant. But her impact echoes through eternity. I don't know how God has gifted you. I don't know where he has called you. I don't know what ministries you are to serve in. Could be in the nursery holding babies. Could be in the parking lot helping to park cars. Could be teaching Bible study. Could be visiting hospitals. Could be in our prayer ministry. It could be discipling young believers. It could be ministering to our schools. It could be going to our nursing homes and doing worship services. I have no idea what God's called you to do. Maybe he's calling you to be a missionary. Maybe he's calling you to be a church planter. Maybe he's calling you to join the work that's happening out in Denellen and to be a part of that work that's going on there. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but here's what I do know. When we walk in unity using our gifts in the right places for the right reasons, for the glory of God, he will accomplish his mission and it'll be beyond our comprehension. So really the question of this passage of scripture is is for every one of us here's what he's doing but what about you would you bow your heads with me this morning father we thank you that as we read your word we are reminded that you have gifted all of us that you have equipped all of us that you have called all of us first and foremost to put our faith and trust in you through the gospel of jesus christ but through that gospel you unlock unlimited opportunities for us to bring you glory and so my prayer for every person today is this help us to surrender to you and to serve you until you call us home to be with you in jesus name we pray amen